Raise your hand. Okay, Mel Gibson. I love the movie. I don't know what it's like without clear play, so I'm just saying. But I, I like at the very end, and, and I, I don't know if this is a spoiler alert or not, if enough of you have seen it, but <clears throat> I, I love these types of movies in, in which Mel Gibson has been leading this ragtag militia and has been really doing a lot of damage to the, the British. And Cornwallis, General Cornwallis of the British, he's, he was such an intelligent strategist. And you know, here we are, we're, we're somewhat trained army men. There's the militia and then there's the trained forces. And the British have us, you know, hands down when it comes to strategy and generals and such. Though, of course, we've got George Washington and the like. And during the Revolutionary War, uh, this, this gentleman by the name of, uh, of Benjamin is leading a militia. And he is many times, or, or in the past, the, the British kind of caught on and really want to cause the militia, who tend to be a little bit more faint-hearted than most, to retreat and then win that resounding victory on the battlefield. And Benjamin knows this, and so he plays into that British mindset. And so he, they have the militia go forth into this battle, and as they encounter the British, they're fighting and fighting, and then suddenly he yells out, retreat. And so the militia retreat, and they're running as fast as they can, and they go over the hill. And you're wondering, as, as a viewer, are the British going to win again? I thought, that, you know, this is almost time for the movie to end. What a bad note to end on. You know, the, the, the Americans are going to get slaughtered. I thought this was supposed to be a cool movie. And you, as, you're, as you're following them, they run over the hill. Then they run down into this little valley, and they all fall down onto the ground. And there's the entire American-trained troops ready to take down the, the British as they crest the hill. And they've set an ambush for the enemy. You know, there are many times in our lives, and I've experienced this in, in many levels, uh, such as our finances, in which it seems so dark, it seems as if there is no way out. God, what are you going to do now? And God sets an ambush for the enemy. It's almost as if God lures Satan into his trap and then springs the trap only to bring him more glory and honor. I want us to look at an ambush this morning. And as we look at Joshua chapter 8, I want you to be thinking about a difficulty that you're facing right now in your life. Maybe that difficulty has to do with a marriage. Maybe it has to do with finances. You know, our church has been through a difficult time in the last several months. And I am believing God is just going to break through in, in numerous levels in, in, in just what he has laid on our hearts and reaching the lost into the neighborhoods and, uh, and just seeing families rescued. Um, and and there's been prophetic words and, and visions uh, of God using us to go into burn, burning cities, rescuing individuals and families. This is what I believe is on God's heart. But God loves to set an ambush. And maybe in your life, as you're looking around and, and you're looking at your family and you feel like the devil has just devastated it, and you've been praying and wondering, God, where are you now? Maybe in your marriage, maybe in your job, your finances. Maybe in, in your own personal ministry, as you're just kind of wondering, God, you know, I, I thought you had called me to some sort of ministry on this campus, 
where are you? It's like nothing is happening. And, and it seems as if anything, uh, darkness is pushing back and it just seems so strong and, and overwhelming. God, where are you in this dark hour? So turn with me if you would. Joshua chapter 8, we're going to read the first 29 verses about this ambush that is set for the city of Ai. Now, you may remember that they tried attacking Ai in chapter 7, and they got wiped out because as they were attacking Ai, they did not realize that there was sin in the camp. And as Joshua was on his face before God saying, God, where were you? We totally, we got creamed. People, uh, Israelites died in this battlefield and we were supposed to win. And, and we were, I thought, God, we were, no enemies would be able to stand up against you. And God said, get on your feet, Joshua. There is sin in the camp. And unless you deal with that sin, you will never be able to stand up against your enemies. So Joshua repents. The people deal with the sin issue in the camp. And now they're poised. God, are you now going to come through for us? Or are we going to have a repeat of the other day? Then the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Can you just underline those two sentences? Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Take the whole army with you and go up and attack Ai. For I have delivered into your hands the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. You shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king, except that you may carry off their, their plunder and livestock for yourselves. Set an ambush behind the city. So Joshua and the whole army moved out to attack Ai. He chose 30,000 of his best fighting men and sent them out at night with these orders. Listen carefully. You are to set an ambush behind the city, and as we find out, that's 5,000 of these 30. Do not, don't go very far from it. All of you will be on the alert. I and all those with me will advance on the city. And when the men come out against us, as they did before, we will flee from them. They will pursue us until we have lured them away from the city, that is their fortified city, lure them away from the city, for they will say, they're running away from us as they did before. So when we flee from them, you are to rise up from ambush and take the city. The Lord your God will give it into your hand. When you have taken the city, set it on fire. Do what the Lord has commanded. See to it. You have my orders. Then Joshua sent them off, and they went to the place of ambush and lay in wait between Bethel and Ai, to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent that night with the people. Early the next morning, Joshua mustered his men, and he and the leaders of Israel marched before them to Ai. The entire force that was with them marched up and approached the city and arrived in front of it. They set up camp north of Ai with the valley between them and the city. Joshua had taken about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. They had the soldiers take up their positions, all those in the camp to the north of the city and the ambush to the west of it. That night, Joshua went into the valley. When the king of Ai saw this, he and all the men of the city hurried out early in the morning to meet Israel in battle at a certain place overlooking the Arabah. 
but he did not know that an ambush had been set against him behind the city. Joshua and all Israel let themselves be driven back before them, and they fled toward the desert. All the men of Ai were called to pursue them, and they pursued Joshua and were lured away from the city. Not a man remained in Ai or Bethel who did not go after Israel. They left the city open and went in pursuit of Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, hold out toward Ai the javelin, that's really a, a small spear, that is in your hand, for into your hand I will deliver the city. So Joshua held out his javelin toward Ai. As soon as he did this, the men in the ambush rose quickly from their position and rushed forward. They entered the city and captured it and quickly set it on fire. The men of Ai looked back and saw the smoke of the city rising against the sky, but they had no chance to escape in any direction. For the Israelites who had been fleeing toward the desert had turned back against their pursuers. For when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had taken the city and that the smoke was going up from the city, they turned around and attacked the men of Ai. The men of the ambush also came out of the city against them so that they were caught in the middle with the Israelites on both sides. Israel cut them down, leaving them neither survivors nor fugitives. But they took the king of Ai alive and brought him to Joshua. When Israel had finished killing all the men of Ai in the fields and in the desert where they had chased them, and when every one of them had been put to the sword, all the Israelites returned to Ai and killed those who were in it. 12,000 men and women fell that day, all the people of Ai. For Joshua did not draw back the hand that held out his javelin until he had destroyed all who lived in Ai. But Israel did carry off for themselves the livestock and plunder of the city as the Lord had instructed Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it a permanent heap of ruins, a desolate place to this day. He hung the king of Ai on a tree and left him there until evening. At sunset, Joshua ordered them to take his body from the tree and throw it down at the entrance of the city gate. And they raised a large pile of rocks over it, which remains to this day. So we see yet another memorial being built. So basically, as we see in chapter 7, we see... The heart of Joshua in despair, kind of asking, God, where were you? It's as if you set us up for defeat. At this point, we're a little bit afraid to go into battle. Because if we do, we're concerned that the same thing's going to happen as it happened at Ai. We're going to lose more men. The heart of their, Israel's heart is going to become uh, melted like wax, discouraged, afraid. And my men aren't going to want to go into battle and take this land. God, you... You've been promising 430 years of, of victory, and, and yet right now, where are you? Where are you, God? And there's this repentance that takes place, and now he gets his marching orders that the, the sin of Achan has been dealt with. A memorial, a pile of stones was poured upon him, kind of symbolizing the uh, destruction, the death, the victory over for us as believers now as we move into the New Testament, over our flesh, over sin. 
And now we are prepared to stand up against all of our enemies. Without that dealt with, you know, as Meredith was saying, the tooth looked really good on the outside, but inside it was full of death. The Pharisees on the outside uh, of the cup it looked nice and clean, but on the inside it was filled with death and destruction and hypocrisy. They were whitewashed tombs, Jesus said. And sometimes on the outside we can look pretty good and God has to do something, such as a defeated AI, to reveal there's a really deep issue here and I need to deal with it. Can you, can you do this? And so they did and now they're poised. And as they're poised for victory, as they now take God's marching orders, as the story unfolds, Joshua said, okay, here's God's battle strategy to the west of Ai, I want 5,000 men, actually between Ai and Bethel. And Bethel's a little far off, but 5,000 men just kind of laying low here in the fields, and we're going to camp to the north, and then they move in front of the city, which apparently they have, they're sitting in the valley, because there's a valley that cuts between them and the city of Ai, and they're ready in, at night, they're ready for battle, and AI early in the morning comes out and they basically say, oh yeah, oh yeah, here we go again. We're going to take you Israelites down, just wait and see. And lo and behold, what happens? They start fighting and the men of Israel start running actually towards the south, probably along the ravine towards the, the desert area, which would be the west portion of the, the sea uh, or the Dead Sea. And the men of AI think we're doing it again. We're going to rout them. These, these they're Israelites, they're fools. They think they can take us. They ain't seen nothing yet. We're going to take them down today, and we're going to destroy this nation. Jericho couldn't do it, but we are the men of Ai. We will get the job done. And so they're pursuing them, and Joshua on a hill lifts up his, his short spear, his javelin, which is the signal. So he's not too, too far from the men who are in hiding. And they see him lifting up his javelin, and that's the key. That's the time. It's time to go into the city. So they come around, and they enter the city, because when the soldiers left, it says they left the city open. Because they figured, hey, piece of cake here. We're going to be, mom, kids, we're going to be back in just a little bit. we got to take care of some business here. But uh, your dad's going to bring home some really good stuff. We call it plunder in battle. But you just wait. And so they left the gates open. They left the city open. Invitation, the 5,000 come in, burn the city. And, they, and the, the AI, AIites, anyway, the people from AI, they, they see the smoke rising and they're wondering, whoa, what has happened? They have set an ambush. And then as soon as they're done burning the city, the Israelites, 5,000 would come out and now they're caught. And the Israelites who were the 25,000 turn around and it's like, oh yeah, here we come. And be, there's the the people of Ai are trapped between and they are all destroyed. An ambush was set and the people of Ai were completely destroyed. No one, no survivors, no fugitives, meaning people who ran off and hid. No one left. Complete destruction. And again, as we see this, there may be some questions in your mind. Well, why would God treat these people so harshly 
And, and all I can say is the sin in this culture was so deep and, and, and their children and the entire culture steeped in this sin of all kinds. God said, I, I, just like at the time of the flood where he had to wipe out all of mankind, he says, I need to wipe out this entire culture and I'm going to choose you, my people Israel, to do this. You will be my hand of judgment on these people. The sin of the Amorites has reached its full. And so the, 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 the purposes of God are to the Israelites, you, you need to destroy everyone. You, you cannot leave any survivors because if you do, they will become thorns in your sides and they will lead you astray to worship their gods and lead you into all of this cultic and, and truly occultic worship of their gods. And I will lose you and you will abandon me. And so he's saying, destroy everyone. So that's what they did with Ai. And if, if you were to go back to verse one, I had you underline two sentences there. It's, it's almost a repeat of Joshua chapter one. Do not be afraid, Joshua. Do not be discouraged. Now he needed to say this because the people were gonna go into battle and it was like deja vu. We are doing this all over again. We're going before the city of Ai. A few more of us this time. We have a little bit different battle strategy. But we're going before the people of, Is the people of Ai. And, and this is what we did before. And we got slaughtered. We, we hightailed it out of there. And, and we're going into this same situation. I tell you what, God, you better show up. Because if you don't, we will have a repeat of the last time we did this. And as they are marching into battle formation in the, that, that during the night in which AI the next morning met them, you can only imagine some questions in the soldiers' minds. God, are you gonna come through? Are you gonna come through this time for us? Are we gonna be able to stand against their enemies or will we fall today? And so Joshua said, you need to have faith. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. And honestly, church, sometimes we face problems over and over. And God is trying to help us get a clue how we can, according to Romans 8, be more than conquerors. How do I walk through this difficulty in triumph instead of in defeat? And there, there comes a point in which God says, from this day forward, you will walk in victory because you have trampled upon these strongholds in your life. You have learned to grasp a hold of faith when everything around you seems dismal and dark. And we come to this place in which God says, today, I need you to have faith. And that is a word to some of you. Today, you need to have faith. Today, you need to look to God and there's something that needs to stir within you that says, today I am standing on the word of God and he will not abandon me. He will come through for me this hour, as dark as it is. And truly, at the time of battle, it was dark. It was first thing in the morning and the men of Israel, it was dark and they were all set up. And then the light dawned and God said, now is the day for victory. And so they ambushed them. The first thing that we need to realize is that if, if we are going to see God in our darkest hour, 
set an ambush for the enemy so that we walk away victorious. We must not be afraid. We must not be discouraged. And if you're discouraged this morning, that is going to work against your faith. And I'm going to challenge you. Let faith, the faith of God, rise up in your hearts and set your heart on the character of God who will not abandon his people. And he will come through. That is his promise. David said, I have never seen the people of God begging for bread in the streets. I know with our personal finances, there have been times in which there's been plenty and times in which there has been want, as Paul says in Philippians 3. And I know how to be content, as Paul says, in both circumstances. And we have had to see time and again God come through. And with every situation, here's just the weakness of your pastor, but in every situation, there wasn't this, all right, here we go. God is going to come through. There were times in which Mike Jeffords had to pull me aside and as we were walking the lot and there was nothing on the lot at the dealership. And I'm wondering, God, this is like a repeat of last, last month. And you came through for us. Actually, you came through for us the last five months. But there's nothing here today. And Mike had to remind me, well, I, I, I recall this happening last month and the month before, Mike. Um, and he came through, and I'm kind of wondering, maybe, maybe God's going to do that again. What do you think? And I'm, yeah, 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 I hear you. And, and so we, sometimes you just, we're going to believe you, God, and I'm going to, and we're going to walk this dealership. And we actually walked the dealership. And, 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 you know, I kind of felt this is a little hokey, but that's what God showed me to do. We walked around the dealership and we just declared, God, you're going to come through for our finances. We walked the lot. There was nothing. And then I, I said, look, there's just one little small job out there. And he said, oh, well, you, you didn't see the two vehicles on the drive-thru. They just came in, if you could. And there was a ton of work on those vehicles. A ton of work, and God made up for the lack. But every, at the end of every month, I was wondering, God, I know I'm supposed to believe you're going to come through, but my knees are shaking. I'm a little faint-hearted here, and I, I need you to come through, and I'm not seeing anything. And God had to over and 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 over again show me, Mike, you got to walk by faith and not by sight. Can you learn to do that? Got it this time, God. And then the next month, God, where are you? <laughs> Praise God, he is such a patient God. So can I ask you, what are your circumstances that you're facing? Because God can set an ambush for the enemy. He can lure him into a trap and defeat him. And, and I think that God delights in this type of victory. It's almost as if he does it so that he will receive more praise and more glory. It's almost as if God wants us to worship him. That God wants us to trust him completely, church. It's amazing. I, I'm being a little facetious there. Now, of course that's God's goal. And he wants us to, to learn to trust him even when it just seems so dark. And it's like, God, come on, don't do this again. Where are you? I want us to just take a, a look at a few ambushes because the second, first thing is that God wants us to have faith, but God wants, in our moment of faith, he wants to set an ambush for the enemy. So let me just speak of a few ambushes that we're aware of in the Old Testament. 
in Isaiah 37, verse 36. Isaiah 37, verse 36. There is a passage there that uh, I want to read to you. Let me turn to it quickly here. There's a few chapters right in the middle of Isaiah. Uh, there's some prophetic words and such, but the focus is a little bit more of the history uh, drawing, especially from 2 Kings. And he refers to this time in which the Assyrians who had destroyed the northern kingdom, Samaria, the, the, the city of Samaria in the northern kingdom, and now they've marched on Jerusalem. Hezekiah, a godly man, is the king at the time. And the Assyrians are a powerful world force. And there's no way that Israel stands a chance. There's no way. There's 185,000 Assyrian soldiers who were ruthless. They would kill their king and impale him. They would set uh, soldiers and hang them just to intimidate the people and say, you better submit to our power or this will happen to you as it happened to the man that's hanging on this tree. And Hezekiah cries out to God. Isaiah sends him a word. The Lord says, and I'm paraphrasing, give me a moment. Let me take care of this. The next morning, in chapter 37, verse 36, it says, Then the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. So I guess there were more than 185,000, but 185,000 were destroyed. Now, king of Assyria, I don't, I don't believe, was right outside the camp. His field commander was, but he was going to be pressing through Israel and he was not able to do that. God stopped him. There's another time in which Jehoshaphat receives word that the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Edomites, who are all on the uh, the the eastern side and southern portion of the Sea of, uh, or the Dead Sea, rise up. They send a strong military force to attack Jerusalem. And Jehoshaphat says, God, what are we going to do? What are we going to do at this point? And God says, in so many words, through a prophet, I got a really cool plan here. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to get your army, and I want you to get all of the, the, the singers and I want them to lead the battle for you. The singers, great. Th those who are untrained in warfare, you want them to lead the way. Joshua didn't question. Okay, then that's what we're going to do. And the singers went ahead of the army and they worshiped God with such a reverent, submissive heart. Your love endures forever. Think about the implications of that as they are marching into battle. How would you feel? to be leading your army, you have no weaponry, all you are doing is worshiping God. You're like a human shield, okay? And, and that's probably how they felt. And they were, I mean, I don't know about you, I would be a little bit afraid at this point. God, are you, are you sure about this? And so it says that as they, as they went over into the valley, they found that the Moabites... And the Ammonites rose up against the Edomites and they started killing one another. 
to the point where they, the whole army decimated themselves. Do you, do you realize that we fight against an enemy, not a physical one, but a spiritual one, that God can confound in battle? Satan and his foe and his cohorts, demons, can become confused and distraught. Now, I, I don't understand completely spiritual uh, battle strategies. God does. But here is another example in which God sets an ambush and they flee. When the Arameans advanced against the city of Samaria, and this was an ungodly king, but Isaiah had said, that the next day, even as they laid siege against Samaria, the Arameans had cut off their food supply for such a long time that prices skyrocketed in the city. And people, it says, were even eating their own children. And Isaiah prophesied by this time tomorrow, in so many words, prices will come down so far, you're not going to believe it. And they kind of mocked him, yeah, right. Now, you may remember there were some lepers who realized, you know, we can either go into the city, scare everybody, take their food, because they were lepers, or we'll just go at the mercy of the Arameans, and, you know, if they kill us, they kill us. We're going to die anyway, but maybe they'll give us some food. So they go into the Aramean camp. They're all gone. They're all gone. All they find, they find their tents empty. They find their raiment, all of their wares, all of their gold, silver, everything, because they had marched through plundering. And, and all of that plunder was strewn across the desert as they ran off miles and miles to the Jordan River. And it said that God caused them to hear chariots at night. And it threw them into such confusion, they thought the Hittites had been hired to come against us, and they fled another ambush or maybe you may remember in, in judges 6 7 and 8 in which God says to Gideon uh, I want to raise you up as a commander of an of my army in Israel and fight against the Midianites there's 130,000 of them and with a little bit of fear and intrepidation Gideon says okay all right I, I will do this and God sends him 32,000 men and God says that's really awesome. You were able to muster 32,000 men to fight against 130,000 Midianites. But guess what, Gideon? That's too many for me to work, for, work with. So he gives him a test, whittles him down to 10,000. Gideon says, okay, 10,000, God. Uh, this is the best that we can do. And God says, that's awesome, Gideon, but that's still too many people. Here's one more test I need you to provide so that we can whittle it down to the men that I need. And he whistled down from 10,000 to Gideon's 300. And you remember the story as they, the, the camp of the Midianites, 130,000 men in this valley, the, the Israelites, the 300 men, stand on top of this mountain ridge and they have a torch with a jar in one hand and a sword in the other. And at Gideon's command, they break the jars. And the jars are supposed the torches, they were typically a, a torch per 50 to 100 men. And when they see 300 
uh, torches, and I, I, I'm sure they didn't stop and go, okay, let's, let's count how many years, okay, what is it, 300 times 50, or, okay, that means there's this many, they, I'm sure they just saw a bunch of torches, and they said, we're surrounded, and they started killing one another, and they, they, they fled with such fear and terror in their hearts, the, the 300 pursued them, 300 were pursuing 130,000, May God arise and our enemies be scattered. Though they come at you from one direction, they will flee from you in seven. One will put ten to flight, and, uh, and what is this? Ten will put a thousand to flight, I believe it goes. You know, this is what our God can do. He sets ambushes for the enemy. And it's almost as if he just says, come on, come on, Satan, just bring your, bring your just a little bit closer, just a little bit closer, and God springs the ambush on the enemy. Remember, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities, the world powers of this dark world, and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. This is a demonic entourage, a demonic army that is fighting against us. This is a spiritual battle that we engage in every single day. How would God spring an ambush in our tiny, puny lives in the 21st century? Well, let me take you back to perhaps the most profound ambush that God ever set in all of history. Before I talk about that, I want to I share with you three things about our enemy, the devil. Number one, he is not omnipresent. Only God is omnipresent. Angels are not. They can only be in one place at one time. Satan is a fallen angel. He can be in only one place at one time. I realize that throughout this world, not just in third world countries, but in America people, as demons are cast out, we say, we bind you, Satan, in Jesus' name, or I rebuke you, Satan, in Jesus' name. And even though we use the, the, the name Satan, it is not because we are right now physically speaking to Satan that we are speaking to a demon, because Satan can be in only one place at one time. Okay, do you follow me there? And so our, our battle is against this demonic entourage. Satan can be in only one place at one time. The demons can be in only one place at one time. And so consequently, we realize the devil and his army can be divided. God cannot because he's everywhere at the same time. He can, he can be in the midst of this battle over here as well as your present battle in this struggle that when you go back to work tomorrow morning, you're going to face again. He can be there. Satan cannot. Satan is not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. As a matter of fact, in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, when Peter is talking about the prophecies of the coming Messiah, he says that the prophets many times didn't even know what they were talking about. They didn't have a complete understanding. And even the angels longed to look into these things concerning salvation. Even the angels did not fully comprehend what was going to happen at the cross because they are not omniscient. And neither is the devil. Neither is any demon that we face. They're not omniscient. They don't know everything. To what degree Satan can predict the future, I, I don't know. There's never an instance in the scriptures in which he could do it so he could do so accurately. I don't know. Maybe he's kind of like, uh, what's the guy's name um, in The Mentalist? Uh, Patrick James, in which he can, he can observe things and kind of guess what's going to happen. But I, I'm mentioning this because Satan, though he's our foe, he is 
and he's a spiritual enemy, he is limited. He's limited in his presence. He's limited in his understanding of things. It says in John 1, 5, it says that Christ as the light came and confounded the darkness. I want to talk about how God, through Christ, confounded the darkness. But Satan is also, so, so therefore Satan can be outwitted. He can be divided, he can be outwitted, and Satan is not omnipotent. Many times in, in our culture, it's prevalent to think of good versus evil. That there is you know, God versus the devil, and there's this cosmic battle as they fight back and forth. And sometimes I guess God wins, and sometimes I guess the devil wins. And maybe at the very end of the age, and this can be a Christian mindset, we just know that eventually God wins. There can, there can be anything further from the truth. Because that means that there is this sense of yin and yang. Have you ever seen the, this? The, in which it's a dualism, in which it's equal power. Let me give you a, a, a really bad illustration here because the difference of strength is even greater. But if I were to declare war, or an ant rather, were to declare war on me, and I will just set up all of you against his little army of ants, who do you think would win, okay? We might get a few bites, okay, maybe, but we would stomp them out in a second. I mean, to, to think that somehow Satan and God are even close to being equal in power, wow, have we really missed the mark. Now, it can feel that way sometimes because God loves to lure the enemy into this ambush and we see God's spring ambushes all the time. Now that we understand that, so Satan, therefore, can be overpowered. He can be divided. He can be outwitted. He can be overpowered because he is not omnipresent. He is not omniscient. He is not omnipotent. So Jesus comes to this earth. I think it's clear to Satan he realizes that Jesus is God come in the flesh. He's aware of this. He's not omniscient, so he does not know the future. He stirs up trouble against Jesus throughout his ministry, even causes Peter to speak on his behalf at one point. So Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You do not understand the things of God. Satan stirs up Judas Iscariot. John tells us he actually enters him. He demonizes him, and he betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Can you almost imagine, and, and I enjoy the passion of the Christ because this is somewhat played out as, as you see the devil just so cunning and so crafty and delighting as he's pulling these things together and as Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and you know the pressure that he is applying on, on Jesus and, and just trying to speak lies to him but Jesus doesn't buy into any of these lies and now as Judas Iscariot that very night shows up on the scene with a battalion of men equipped for battle to arrest Jesus and to try him and as the trial goes on before the Sanhedrin uh, we realize that they have a case even though it's falsified a case against Jesus specifically with blasphemy 
And so they realize they've got to put this Jesus to death. He has nothing but trouble. And you can almost see the devil wringing his hands. Yes, I almost have him. And God thought that he was going to be able to deliver Israel. No way. I'm going to destroy the plans of God. And finally, as he stirs up uh, uh, Pilate, Pilate saying, I found no charge against him. Three times, Luke tells us, I find no charge, no basis of a charge against him. Finally, he, he washes his hands and said, I have nothing to do with it. He's now yours. You crucify him. You do with him what you will. And so even though he had Jesus flogged, hoping that this would pacify them, no, they still want him crucified. They now take Jesus to, to Golgotha, the place of the skull. And the centurion has his men set up a cross and they crucify Jesus. And you can almost feel this sense. And, and I like how passion of the Christ, you see the devil as he's overseeing this. Yes, yes. And then the very last scene, Satan thinks he has defeated God. And if you remember way back in the, in, the, in the desert, Jesus had been fasting and he offers him, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. If Jesus, you'll just bow down and worship me. And Jesus rebukes him and he says, but, the, but God says, worship the Lord your God only. Because Jesus knew there is a different plan here. The very reason I have been sent and I, by death on the cross, I will rescue these people and I will win these nations to me. I don't need to worship you and you and your deception give them to me. That's not how this plan is going to unfold. And so there Jesus is and he's died on the cross and he's buried in the grave. And you can almost imagine Satan saying, finally, I have defeated God. And yet Jesus rises again on the third day. Can I just tell you that those theologians who say that the battle was won in, in, in hell, and this teaching has been going around, and it's completely erroneous, church, and I just want to take one quick moment and expose it, but uh, some have, have really gone to lengths to discuss this, in which Jesus went to hell, and that he, he, Satan thought that he was simply a man, and now Jesus is dead and he's never coming back. And suddenly Jesus reveals that he's God come in the flesh and he takes the keys from Satan and he rises from the dead. There's nowhere in scripture that even closely supports this teaching. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, his spirit did not go to hell. His spirit ascended to the Father into your hands. I commit my spirit. When Jesus suffered on the cross, he said in his final words, it is finished. The devil had already been defeated. The devil's works were in the process of being destroyed. Jesus did not need to descend into hell because this, this phrase in the Apostles' Creed and descended into hell, even though it came on the scene around 300 to 400 AD, was not put in the Apostles' Creed until in the 600s. 
And it, it was a misunderstanding of a few passages. But church, I need, we need to realize that the victory, Jesus taking the keys from the devil is not on Jesus, was not on God's radar. By death and then resurrection, the keys were earned, were given to him. He, Satan was lure, lured into this ambush. And by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it says that our, our justification was secure. Satan was lured into battle, surely thinking in this darkest hour and understand from noon until three in the afternoon when Jesus died, there was darkness of the face of the earth. And it even is written in secular writing. People observed that you could even see the stars in the sky. And they wrote it off as simply, well, it's because of an eclipse. But it was during the Passover, which happens during the, the, the full moon. And it is absolutely impossible for there to be an eclipse during a full moon. This is, cannot be explained naturally. It was a divine act of God in which darkness came upon the earth. And I can only imagine Satan is, is reeling in victory, feeling he has finally overcome the Son of God. And yet, my Bible tells me that Jesus, by his death and by his resurrection, overcome all of the works of the devil. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. Turn there quickly with me, if you would. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. As soon as I get there, I'm reading it, okay? It says... He who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared, came to earth, was to destroy the devil's work. We need to realize that the cross is in this process of destroying the devil's work. We can word it this way, and we're going to get to this in the theology class. By the cross, Satan was destroyed. By the advancement of the gospel, this, the Satan and his army are in the process of being destroyed. And at the end of the age, when Satan is eventually thrown into the lake of fire, the second death, hell itself, he will be completely destroyed. He was destroyed at the cross. He's in the process of being destroyed. And he will ultimately be destroyed at the end of the age. <clears throat> John 14. Jesus knew about this ambush. He knew about this ambush. He didn't use that term. He, he worded it this way, though, in John 14, verse 30. I will not speak with you. He's, he's, he's in the upper room just a, a, a few minutes or hours before he heads over into the, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane where he prays and then is betrayed by Judas. He says this, John 14, verse 30, I will not speak with you much longer. For the prince of this world, who is the devil, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold on me, but the world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. The will of the Father was for Jesus, the Son of God, to go to the cross. Jesus understood this. How is it that the devil was coming? The devil was coming in the person of Judas and that entourage that he led in the form of the Sanhedrin, in the form of Pontius Pilate, though warned by his wife in a dream, be careful about this man. Pontius Pilate said, 
turned it over to the Jews, and Jesus was crucified. The devil was coming. The devil was coming to take him away in the darkness. I mean, you see darkness throughout this. Jesus was betrayed in darkness. When Jesus was hanging on the cross and the sins of the world were being poured out upon him, the cup of God's wrath was poured out upon him and he was receiving the just punishment for my sins that were placed upon the sun for three hours. It was dark on the face of the earth. And for three days, Jesus lay in a dark tomb. There's darkness everywhere. Everywhere. Until the light of Christ's resurrection dawned and on on the first day of the week early in the morning it was realized Jesus has been raised from the dead John 12 verse 31 now Jesus says he's speaking to his to the, the, the people gathered around him now is the time for judgment on this world and that was going to happen at the cross now the prince of this world will be cast out at the cross, Satan would be cast out. It's not that he won't be able to be involved in people's lives. We're going to have to, as we go through this uh, theology class, as we're looking in the millennium and all of this, we're going we're to look at that concept of how Satan was cast out, but just not today. Let's just understand, Jesus is fully aware that at the cross, Satan is going to be defeated. He's going to be cast out. He's going to be overcome. And then he says this, but I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. It was by the cross that Jesus was going to draw all of those lost in darkness to himself. It was going to be by Jesus' death that he was going to be able to, follow me now, put us to death, the me, the flesh, the old man, to death, so that I would be raised up in newness of life in Christ. I want you to go back to Joshua chapter 8 and, and notice something here that I personally had not noticed until this past week. But in John chapter 8, it says in verse 20, 28, so Joshua burned Ai and made it a permanent heap of ruins, a desolate place to this day. He hung the king of Ai on a tree and left him there until evening. This concept of hanging on a tree, talked about in the Old Testament, those who are hung on a tree will be cursed. And that's why they're doing this. If you were to look at the Septuagint, do you remember what the Septuagint is? It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, written between 250 to 288 uh, B.C., if you were to look in there, their translation reads this way, that the king of Ai was hung on a double tree. Sometimes that word tree means a post or a piece of wood. What they're getting at here is the Roman crucifixion. Not just a tree, but a double tree, a double stick, a double post, if you will. That would clearly indicate Roman crucifixion. So even within this concept of the Septuagint, they are alluding to the crucifixion, a crucifixion may not seem like a big deal. I mean, why would you be bringing this up, Mike? If we were to stay with the Septuagint, it says he hung the king of Ai. Excuse me. It says, so Joshua burned Ai and made it a permanent heap of ruins, a desolate place. He hung the king of Ai on a tree. 
And when you read the Septuagint and you come across that name Joshua, the one who had the king hung, you read this name, Iesus. Does that ring a bell to any of you? Do you know who Iesus is in the New Testament? It's Jesus. When you read through the entire New Testament, he's called Iesus, Iesus, Iesus. Jesus is Joshua. That was his Hebrew name. But in Greek, Iesus. I almost see a sense of irony here kind of played out as God sets this ambush. Satan himself, by Jesus' cross, is crucified, is destroyed. That Jesus, Iesus, he is the one who overcomes the enemy. I just see, I, 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 as I read through that, I, I almost laughed, realizing that God, it is through Jesus' death that he puts to death all of the works of the devil. Now, let me, let me now bring this full circle as we talk about and going through this, the New Testament, because now we see just persecution. It doesn't just an ambush that God sets for the devil at the cross, but now as we go through the book of Acts, we see one ambush after the other. We see the, the rulers persecuting the church. And what happens in Acts 8, the persecution becomes so intense, the church is scattered. Can you imagine Satan saying, okay, may, I may not have been able to keep the Son of God down, but now I've got his church on the run. And we're going to destroy this cult. We're going to destroy this belief in Jesus. And I'm going to win and no one's going to believe in Jesus. Do you remember what happens? Philip says, you know what, God, I, I think I'm going to go over here to Samaria. I'm not going to stay in Jerusalem where all the persecution is because the church is now being scattered. And he begins to proclaim the gospel. And many people are being saved. They're being healed. Demons cast out. The gospel's proclaimed. And now what happens is when Satan thinks that he's finally destroying the church, it only makes it increase more. You know, this is the humor and the irony that's played out in this spiritual battle that we face every day, God setting the ambush. Yeah, you really think you got me on this one, huh? The apostles, history tells us, were martyred. Every single one of them but John. And with every martyrdom, can you almost feel, you, you almost get this feeling of, of giddiness on, on Satan and his demons part. yes. One more down, eight to go. One more down, seven to go. One more down, six to go. And we're going to destroy all of them. We're going to crush this thing called Christianity. But do you realize that with every persecution and martyrdom, not only do we see the gospel spread powerfully, powerfully, it's almost as if when the devil swings so hard, it turns around and hurts him more. Now, if you were to watch any debates concerning the resurrection of Jesus, which for me has been one of the things that has really encouraged me, because when I was in a crisis of faith six years into my walk with Christ, I found a book, and in one of the chapters, it talked about the resurrection of Jesus, evidences for the resurrection. And I thought to myself, I mean, come on, this is silly. It's so subjective. You either believe it or you don't. And then they began to examine all the evidences and it blew me away. And one of the evidences that's used is why did the apostles die for their faith? Why did they do that? It's because every single one of them believed so firmly that they didn't just 
believed Jesus rose from, they saw him risen from the dead. They touched him. They knew for sure, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that he had died. Pierce thrust through his side, blood water coming out, clear indication medically that he had died. Laid in a tomb, they all saw this. And yet all of them testified, wait, wait, wait. No, 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 we saw, yeah, we saw him risen from the dead. And I, I remember touching him because I couldn't believe it. Thomas, I, I, I knew that he was, I wanted to be able to touch his scars, but I, knew, I realized, no, I don't, don't want to be a fool. I don't want to doubt him right here. Yes, you're risen from the dead, but they saw him eating. These are the things they testified. They hung out with Jesus. It wasn't just a momentary apparition or some hallucination. And you go through, how can these things be explained? Was it hallucinations? Was it this? Was it that? All of them fall apart. And here is the clinching truth. And that is that every single one of them were so convinced that what they saw was truly the risen Jesus. They were willing to die for that truth. Can I just say, no one that we're aware of has been willing to die for what they knew to be a lie. Why? What's the benefit in that? And yet... Satan thinks by having all of these apostles martyred, he's going to squash Christianity. And what it has become is a rock-solid truth and evidence that Jesus truly must have risen from the dead and appeared to them. For them to be so on fire, so determined to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ, even if it meant their death. So, as we now come full circle here. We want to know what is the significance of all of this for us. I want to ask you what difficulty are you facing? Are you allowing God to set up an ambush for the enemy? The prerequisite is repentance and prayer. That's what we saw in chapter 7. Fair enough? Repentance and prayer. It's been a long time. Um, I, I can't say I've read this book, This Present Darkness. Uh, it was during, it came out, became very popular. I did not have time. I was working two full-time jobs at the moment. And my wife graciously bought me the, bought me the book on cassette. And so I remember listening it every chance I got. And in this story, and, and I, I can't remember all the details. Satan is plotting something very big. And he is choosing to, uh, choosing to come against a small town. And a small church in that small town says he is not going to encroach on this town. He's not going to do it. And we need to face him. And a small church in a small town rises up against what Satan is doing. And it's at a portion in the book in which you realize that this small church is not going to be able to be victorious because as the angels discuss among themselves, they conclude this, we cannot overcome these demons of darkness because there is not enough prayer that is being offered up. And I want you to consider that as Frank Peretti is trying to unfold a truth here in his book. 
that many times God has to he has to introduce a tremendous difficulty so that his people truly cry out in utter complete desperation God come and rescue us and it's almost as if the, the church is asleep until finally they feel the fire so intensely under them they realize well, we better do something about this we better hey how about if we how about if we pray actually how about if we cry out to God because if he doesn't come through we're done for my family's done for my finances they're done for my marriage it's done for I gotta cry out to the Lord and many times God will allow that fire to be set under us. And he does it because he's needing this sense of desperation to come forth from his church. And if you were to look through the Bible, Old and New Testament, over and over again, you see the people of God crying out to their heavenly father. Over and over. And it's, it's as if they, it, 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 the prayers reach and escalate to this crescendo in which God says, yes, now is the time. Now I come through. Now I step in. Now I spring my ambush. But can you imagine what happens, though, if the church never cries out like that? If they never feel the fire? If they continue in this casual walk through Central Park, as it were, and they never rally in prayer and the angels discuss amongst themselves man, I, I, God just let, let, let's go just send me out and God is saying no I need to hear these prayers from my people I need to hear this cry lifted up I need my people to cry out to me they're not desperate enough they don't need me enough they think they can do it on their own they think they can provide. They think they're smart enough. They think they can outwit the devil on their own. And I need them to know that they can't. But if they trust me, if they're not afraid and are not discouraged and they fully trust me, then I can step in. But sorry, guys, we're not there yet. You need to wait. And my question is, is Joshua fell on his face and all the elders of Israel fell on their face before God in essence saying God what's up what's going on here I don't understand I thought this was your promise but have we missed you God you have got to come through for us then God answered Maybe our problem is that we think we are smart enough and strong enough. Maybe we're spiritual enough or godly enough. Maybe we think we can take the devil on our own. But the truth is, church, we can't. But with God's help, as we cry out to him 24-7, the church crying out to him in desperation. That's when I believe we will see the people of God rising up, the ambushes set, and the kingdom of God advancing with such power and force in our day that will be unprecedented in all of history. I fear, though, that the church hasn't learned.
have to confess, I think I'm still learning. And I find myself like Joshua on my face regularly. God, come on, where are you? Where are you, God? Come through in this dark hour for me right now. Many times the people of God fail to pray and fast adequately without this sense of desperation and urgency and persistence. And so God's got to turn up the heat so as to produce this war cry of prayer within his people. And then lastly, I'm only going to be a moment on it. It says that they raised a large pile of rocks in front of Ai where they laid the body of, king, of the king of Ai down, a large pile of rocks over it, and it remains to this day. The pile of rocks over Achan's body was a symbol of death and victory over sin as we now move into the New Testament understanding. And this pile of rocks over the king of Ai would represent the power of the cross in every situation in our lives in which it is a symbol, a memorial, a, a, a message, daily reminder to us of the death and the victory over the enemy by Christ. Can you stand with me right now? I believe that God wants to raise up a memorial, whatever the circumstance that you're finding yourself in today, that God wants to erect this memorial. He's wanting to spring this ambush. He's wanting to show himself mighty on your behalf. He wants you to truly know that his grace is sufficient because in your weakness, that's when his strength is made perfect. And sometimes we have to come to the very end of our strength and even almost to this point of despair in which we utterly cry out to you, God, I can't, but I know that you can. As God raises up in our midst from our hearts that cry, I'm going to challenge you, church, wait and see your God come through for you. And so God, we turn to you. Right now, in, in, the, in this dark moment in our lives, in this discouragement, whatever, we, as we look around, we feel as if the devil has encroached upon us and he is poised, ready in the seeming victory over us. God, we're, we're, we're ready to fall and we need you to be our strength, Lord. We need you to come through, not tomorrow, but today, right now. And I'm asking you, Lord God, that you would intervene, that you would spring this ambush, that you would destroy the works of the devil, that as you lure him, you would only demonstrate your power and your victory even more. And that the fall of our enemy, the devil, would be so great, so great, God, that we would step back and say, only my amazing God could, could have done that. weakness as Gideon's 300 we say God step into my life into my business into my church step into my family at this time because I cannot I'm so weak but though I cannot you can 
you can. I repent, Lord. I acknowledge my weakness before you right now. I am broken. But in my brokenness, I am not destroyed. Father, come through right now. Show yourself mighty. We want to build a memorial today, God, that would honor your goodness and your grace, your glory, and it would shine that my God my God is a warrior God, and he fights on my behalf. And in this hour, he will come through, and he will do it again and again and again, because he will never leave me, nor will he forsake me. That is the goodness and the unfailing love of my redemptive God. And so turn my situation around, God. Totally turn it around and redeem it for your purposes. God, there are those here and we desperately need that breakthrough. Come to our aid, God. Step into our situation and totally turn it around. And we give you the praise and the honor and glory because you are so good and so gracious. In Jesus' name.